Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is journalist Elisa Roth, author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. Roth's work has been broadcast on Marketplace, NPR, and The World. Her stories have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and Gastron Gastronomica, among other publications. Roth gave a talk titled America's Hidden Mental Health Crisis on March 12, 2019 as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2018-19 Lorwin Lecture on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Her talk was part of the Common Good series. Thank you so much, Elisa, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So why did you become a journalist? How did you wind up doing that? Well, I originally thought I was going to be a doctor and go to medical school. Um, but then I realized what I really wanted to do was travel around the world and talk to people. Um, and it seemed like a better way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, tell me something about the kind of stories that uh, attract you. Like, you know, be, be, before you got to this book, what, what, were, what were you reporting on? What were you writing about? I like underdogs. Um, I like telling stories of people whose stories wouldn't otherwise be told. Um, so I've done a lot of work on refugees, um, both from the Iraq War and from the Syrian War, um, undocumented immigrants in the United States, um, people who fly under the radar in, in a variety of ways. Hmm, interesting. So what inspired you to write Insane America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness? I was doing a lot of work on the issue of mass incarceration. And I started looking at it and I realized that we've, we've come to agree that, that race is a big piece of it. And we're starting to come to the understanding that poverty and inequality is part of that story. And there was this third piece of it that kept coming up, but I felt like nobody was talking about it. And then there was the fact that there were people in particular sectors who were talking about it. So say the police would talk about what they were dealing with, or the sheriffs would deal, talk about what they were dealing with in the jail. But nobody seemed to understand that it really spanned the entire system. And not just the entire system, but it was happening in Oregon, but it was also happening in California and Minnesota and New York, and nobody was talking about that. And so I was very excited to be able to try to put those pieces together. So can you say a little bit about the double entendres in the book's title? I think there's a couple of them, but correct me if I'm wrong. Insane, of course, is, is a questionable word. Um, we do use it in the legal system, but it's a, a questionable word. Um, but it calls our attention to how insane this is. Um, and we can say that we're talking about the people with mental illness who are caught in the system, but I think we can also equally or maybe more so talk about how insane it is how we're treating people with mental illness in this country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, it also seems to me that um, there's something criminal about the way that they're getting treated. That is absolutely <laughs> correct. We call them criminals because they have been put into our jails and prisons, but I would argue that we're really the criminals for how we're treating them. So you begin the book um, by talking about Ken Kesey's celebrated 1962 novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and you know, we're at the University of Oregon. The Kesey Farms right up the right up the road. Kesey went here, so uh, I have to ask you: Why did you start there? Why did you start with Kesey? Because there are so many people in this country for whom one flew or the cuckoo's nest is 
our mental health care system. It's what's wrong with our mental health care system. It's what we need to fix about it. And it's the cause, what, what we saw in that book and in the movie, is the cause of where we are today that our jails and prisons are mental health care centers. So I think it's widely believed um, that the current crisis in the care of people with mental health problems is primarily the result of a kind of widespread shutdown of psychiatric hospitals like those that are portrayed in, in Cuckoo's Nest. And in fact, arguably part of the reason why that movement happened was because of that book and that film. But one of the things that your book is careful to do is to say it's more complicated than that. So tell us some of the ways in which it's more complicated than that. For starters, it suggests that what we saw in Run Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was the first time this happened, mm -hmm. that we had all these people living in the asylum, we shut the asylum down, and without the treatment they had been getting in the asylum, suddenly these people were committing crimes and ending up in jail and prison, which were now our new asylums. The sad truth is that we can go back to the time before we were even a country um, and see that we have never known how to handle this. We understand that people with mental illness need care, treatment, help, whatever you want to call it, but we don't know how to do that or where to do that. And we can see that starting from that again from the 1750s, 1760s, we were putting people with mental illness into jail and the only crime was that they didn't fit into the rest of society. And I mean, they, they come out of the psychiatric hospitals, they're you know, on the streets, their behavior is non-normative, they get arrested, they go into the prison system, they go into the criminal justice system. I'm not sure many people realize that the majority of treatment for mental illness in this country happens in prisons. Tell us a little bit part about that part of the story. Well, for starters, we should say that, that despite what many of us think, even in the time of Ken Kesey, yeah. Most people with mental illness were not in a hospital or an institution or asylum. They were living in the community and getting whatever care they were getting out in the community. Um, nowadays, as we know, there's not enough care in the community. There never has been. Um, people who are ending up in jails and prisons who have a mental illness and they're ending up in disproportionate numbers. Um, People, people in jails and prison are the only group of Americans who have a constitutional right to health care, which is, I would argue, another form of insanity. Um, and so in the jails and prisons, we are required to provide mental health care. But the way the courts have left it, it, it's been mostly up to the states and in many cases to the jails and prisons themselves to decide what that means and what that looks like. And so, in many cases, it means no therapy at all or therapy that lasts two minutes and is shouted through a steel cell door or is done in front of a group of other um, people being held in the jail or prison in a culture where showing weakness is something that you want to avoid at all costs. Um, 
there tends to be both under-medication and over-medication. So there are people who a psychiatrist would tell you desperately need medication and they're not getting it or they're not getting the one that works or they're not getting enough of it that works, they're not getting it often enough. Um, there's also over-medication, so like we saw in the asylums back in the day, um, giving people lots of drugs so that they are quiet and quote unquote behave um, is a very easy way to provide psychiatric care. Um, so how did you gain access to prisons and jails? I mean, they were like, come on in, tell our tell this story, how did that work? You know, in some cases they absolutely were. The LA County Jail, which has had a terrible history of how it deals with people generally and people in particular with mental illness, um, was really ready to say, we've turned over a new leaf. We're, we understand that we're up against a horrible, difficult situation. We're doing the best we can. Come see it, I got amazing access there. I went to another jail where they had some horrible, horrible incidents very recently, in particular a young man with schizophrenia who died in the jail um, because of neglect, um, who again came and said, let us show you that, that we're great and we haven't done anything wrong. Mm. In other cases, it was a lot of knocking on doors. It took me close to a year to get in on an official visit to Rikers Island in New York, and that was to do a story that was ostensibly gonna make them look good, yeah. and with the help of the doctors who were working there and all that, and it, and it was very difficult. There are other places in Alabama, I kept trying to get into the prisons, and I was finally told to go and investigate another state. Thank you very much. Mm. So let's talk about the LA County Jail, because that, that's, a, that's an important part of your story and, and you found some interesting things there. So tell us some of the things that you discovered about what's going on in, in, that, in that particular uh, institution. Um, the LA County Jail is one of the largest, if not the largest jail in the US. Um, the numbers tend to change a little bit day by day and year by year, but it's one of the biggest institutions. Um, a huge percentage of its population has mental illness. Um, and in many cases, it's quite severe mental illness. So they have a separate wing, holds thousands of people designated particularly for people with mental illness who've been determined are too sick to live in the general population. And you can really see you don't need to be a trained psychiatric worker to identify that these people are truly sick. So. Um, a lot of people you'll see wrapped in a blanket, hiding under the bed, and you be told, you know, this is how they drown out the voice or they're how they're protecting themselves. Um, I remember a man who had taken the jail-issued underwear, which is made out of kind of a cloth, paper, paper cloth, and torn it up and created this very elaborate jewelry, and he would stand at the door to his cell and just scream at anybody who walked by. I mean, it was quite intimidating, even with the door between us. Um, and as in other jails and prisons, it's the, the deputies, the corrections officers, who are the first line mental health care workers. Um, I should say that it's, it's particularly noticeable, this law enforcement role in Los Angeles, because it's the their sheriff's deputies who've gone through um, the academy like any other deputy. Um, so they, almost more than any other corrections worker, will say, I wasn't trained to do this. Um, but the healthcare staff really depends on them. And so I sat in on the meetings where the, the sheriff's deputies are reporting back to the psychologist and the psychiatrists, everything from 
he's sleeping all the time, he's not doing this, he's throwing things, he's spitting at us, all these things that are first of all not their job to be doing, um, but they're at a double disadvantage because since they're not healthcare workers, they have no access to the healthcare records. They mm -hmm. don't know this person has schizophrenia or this person is has depression and what's happened in the last six months. Um, so it's a very frustrating, it's very easy for us to demonize the the enforcement side of it and say, oh, those officers are, are terrible and, and sadistic. And I think it's important to remember that they too have been sucked into this really unfair position in this system. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about the book is you take, one of your uh, techniques is to do kind of case, you, get, you, you, you stick with a particular example of a particular story of a person. And I'm, I'm also really interested in the care with which you take to not demonize anybody, whether it's the, the people that work in the prison, the, the judges, the healthcare providers, uh, the prisoners themselves, the incarcerated themselves. Say why that was important for you to just, you know, not be, I mean, the book is not a book that says, okay, you know, these are the people we're gonna go hang up on their, you know, uh, and that'll solve the problem. Say, say why you, you really, this approach is so important for you. I feel like this is really a systemic problem mm -hmm. and a systemic crisis. And so, of course, we can point to some bad apples on all sides of this. We can say that these people who are locked up, some of them did some really awful things. We can look at corrections officers or police officers, and some of them have done some really awful things they shouldn't have done. But overall, we've created or allowed to develop this system that is so wrong and so unfair and I think that in a way everybody involved in it is a victim in a different way of course but they're all we're all implicated in it in a way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I think that that argument really comes through in the book very powerfully um, tell us about one of the the individuals that you you really the, one of the stories that you tell uh, no, you know there there are many of them but you can choose but J Jamie Wallace is the one that I was thinking of but feel free to talk about any of the uh, people that you really write about. Jamie Wallace was a young man from Alabama, and I would argue that Jamie Wallace is Exhibit A of the person who has fallen through the cracks in the system. So Jamie was born to. I would say a lower middle class family. His dad was a truck driver. Um, he lived with his brother and his mother and his father. Um, he'd been born with some physical disabilities and some mental health issues. There was some history of um, both mental health issues on both sides of the family. Um, he was getting mental health care already as a, like a six-year-old, which a six-year-old in the public system in Alabama getting mental health care, I imagine that means he was pretty sick. Mm -hmm. um, abusive parents, um, so a complicated family situation. Um, and he did do something awful. He ended up shooting and killing his mother. Um, and not just shooting and killing her, but doing it in front of his little brother. Um, he tried to run off, um, got arrested and taken to jail, charged with a number of things, including trying to not get arrested and of course, 
killing his mother, um, was in jail for months and months and months and getting minimal mental health care, was eventually um, sent to the state hospital very briefly. And after, I think it was close to two years or a little bit over two years, um, he decided to take a plea bargain. It was against everybody's advice, his attorney, his father, um, his brother, for what that's worth. Um, but he said in court he just couldn't take it anymore. He was done. He wanted to go to prison. So he got sent to prison. The, the prisons in Alabama are particularly um, terrible. They've been cited in a recent federal lawsuit. Um, not enough care, not enough space, dirty, the whole, you name it, they have that problem. Um, and Jamie was there for a while. Um, he had, as, as part of his mental health history, he had had a number of suicide attempts. He would cut himself. Um, and when you go through his health records from Alabama, it's really impressive, if you can call it that, the ways that he would find to cut himself, which to me is a sign of the desperation, right? He would break a light bulb in his cell and then use the broken glass to cut himself. He would sharpen chicken bones on the cement floor and cut himself. And all this time he was in a cell by himself, so effectively in solitary confinement. He was a man that if you, when you go back and look at what his, his doctor reports were, that he, he actually did better when he was in some company of other people and he would see people. I mean, we all are, right? Um, but he was kept by himself. He had a Bible, and I think that was it. Um, and he was somebody who had a hard time reading besides, so it's, he really had nothing to do. Um, and he eventually killed himself. And it's just such a heartbreaking story um, because we all failed him. We failed him pretty much from the minute he was born to the minute he died. Um, so one one part of that story is you you know man, you, you mentioned that he usually did better if he was in the presence of other people, but he was in solitary in effect in solitary confinement. And many of the people that you write about have sp spent time, spent all their time or part of their time in solitary confinement. Why, why did why is solitary confinement so, so common in our in our prison system now, and in particular? Why is it that the mentally ill wind up in solitary confinement so often? Um, I'm gonna start with a very quick history lesson that okay. solitary confinement was developed centuries ago by the Quakers who actually at the time thought it was a good thing. Um, it would be a moment for this person who's done something wrong to contemplate what they've done, to mm. commune with God, to mm -hmm. come out a better person. Um, the Quakers and the prison at that time realized very quickly that that was not in fact the case, mm. that it drove people mad, as they said. Um, Charles Dickens came and visited the prison, wrote about this, other famous people saw it. Um, we've persisted with it for a number of reasons. Um, it's certainly the most punitive solution in a very punitive system. And one of the problems in jails and prisons is that when you're trying to punish somebody and you start taking away their rights or taking away their privileges, you quickly run out of things to take because they don't have that much to begin with. And so solitary becomes this very easy answer. 
the other piece of it um, is that, as we said, it makes people mad. Um, but when somebody's disruptive, it's a very easy out. Um, you're screaming all night, you're bothering the other people on your unit, what are we gonna do? We're gonna throw you in the basement in solitary and effectively forget about you. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the sort of irony among the ironies of solitary confinement is that we have something like 70 or 80,000 people in solitary confinement in some form in our jails and prisons today, um, probably more than that. Um, but when you ask the experts, you know, how many of those people have a mental illness, the answer I've gotten over and over again is, we don't really know because we put people in solitary who are ostensibly sane and they come out insane. Um, so it's not just that we're putting sick people there, we are making people sick mm -hmm. by putting them mm -hmm. there. Fascinating. So your, you know, so, so much of your story is, is um, distressing and upsetting and, and makes us feel, you know, ma makes readers feel, you know, this is a shock and, you know, we're, we've got this huge problem and we're dealing with it in all the wrong ways. But there's also parts of your, your narrative which are about in individual, individual institutions or individual people, you know, individual judges, individual prison administrators who are trying to do things differently. Say something about some of the, the innovations and the parts of the story that encouraged you. I think that the thing that I find most hopeful about this very unhopeful story is that we all agree that it's a terrible situation and that we need to do something to fix it. Um, and we're seeing, you know, we talked earlier about how this is a problem that really affects the entire criminal justice system. And so we're seeing these fixes in different places. So for example, um, police interactions are the first place where people come in contact with the system. And those interactions often go bad in the sense that the person may get arrested and continue through the system. In the worst case, um, one in four fatal police shootings involve a person with mental illness, so they go bad that way. So we're seeing more and more law enforcement agencies that are training their officers to deal with people with mental illness, so to de-escalate a situation, to help convince somebody, let's go to the hospital instead of taking them to jail. Um, we're seeing in San Antonio, Texas, which started this, but it's now being copied in a bunch of places, um, a, a center, the Restoration Center it's called, that was set up as sort of a one-stop shop for people with mental illness, so the police can bring them there. It's set up to make it convenient for the police. It's set up to make it pleasant for the people. And once they've been stabilized, then can be directed to whether it's mental health services, housing, all those things that you might need. Um, I just learned about a, a new program in Los Angeles that is a diversion program, so get people out of the criminal justice system once they've been arrested. And it deals with some of the hardest to deal with defendants. So in order to get accepted into the program, you have to have a serious mental illness, you have to be homeless, and you have to have a felony charge, so a serious crime, uh, being charged with a serious crime. And I think all of these are very hopeful because it's clear we're, we're trying to fix it. I always worry that 
we're not looking enough at the big picture. So we're fixing the individual pieces of this, which is important and critical and we should absolutely be doing. But I think we also need to step back and look at the, the bigger picture and say, why is it that law enforcement is, is responding to a mental health crisis? Or why is it that somebody who has a serious mental illness and doesn't have a place to live is ending up in the criminal justice system? So what, I mean, you're asking those kinds of questions. What are some of the answers that you've got to share? to those big, hard questions. If I knew that, I'd have yeah, a million right. dollars. I know, I know, I know. Um, you must have some thoughts about that, though. I mean, I do think that these um, solutions that we're talking about, looking at each of these pieces and saying, these are all the different stages of the system where, where people with mental illness are getting caught up, where they're being treated unfairly. Let's figure out how to make this the best outcome possible. Um, one of the things I didn't talk about, but I think is key, is that many jails and prisons are looking at improving the mental health care. Mm -hmm. um, and they have literally a captive audience. So why aren't we using this time to get people back on track, to help connect them to Medicaid when they get out, all these things that people need and that we should have provided back before they ended up here. But um, And then I think that we as a society need to think about how do we think about mental illness? How do we think about people with mental illness? Um, why is it that for 250 years our default answer has been throw them in jail because we don't have to look at them? So how do we change our mindset so that we can think about um, a different way to, to deal with all this? So we just have a, a couple of minutes left, and I think this will probably be my last question, but um, can you tell us anything about the kind of new projects that you're working on? Are there any new projects you can share? Well, I keep thinking that I'm gonna get away from this mental <laughs> illness and criminal justice story, but it, um, for better or for worse, it keeps coming back, so. No, no. <laughs> let me ask you another question. I, I know that one of the things you've done is look at what's happening in other countries, mm -hmm. how other countries, say something about what you've seen there. Um, I think we need to think about what we are doing wrong. Um, and the two things that I would argue that we're doing wrong is healthcare and incarceration. Um, we know that, that we don't have enough healthcare available and, and access to healthcare. And we incarcerate more people by orders of magnitude than any other country. Um, and so I think both of those are the places that other countries are doing better. Scandinavia, um, they seem to do better on almost everything. Um, but for example, I visited one of the prisons in Norway. Um, and one of the things we see frequently here are people who, who end up in the criminal justice system and get a, their first diagnosis of mental illness. So they've been sick their whole life, but because they've been out of the mental health care system, out of all these other things, nobody figures it out until they're, it's too late in some sense. And when I asked the psychologist who runs health services at the, at the prisons in Norway about this, she said, we don't see that. People have been in this health care their whole lives, so we know not only do we know before, but we can look back at their record and say, this is what worked when, when you were 18, let's try this again. Um, but I think also just locking fewer people up would be a great place to start. Okay, well on that uh, commonsensical <laughs> suggestion, 
I want to thank you, Elisa, for talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with journalist Elisa Roth, author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. Roth gave a talk titled America's Hidden Mental Health Crisis on March 12, 2019. As the Oregon Humanities Center's 2018-19 Lerwin Lecturer on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, her talk was part of the Common Good series. Thanks so much for watching.